It's a delight to be with you all this morning. It is a unique blessing and an added joy to see many former members coming back to worship with us today. I can see the sequeras here. I can see the hares over here from Cameroon of all places. I can see the Tysons and Julian Strickland. So it's such a joy and a blessing to see you all this morning as we worship our risen Lord. Uh, let's turn to the book of Proverbs. I'm sure I meet somebody for sure. Proverbs. I'll read Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs 1, 8 to 19. And we will be talking about fatherhood, which makes sense because today is Father's Day. So this sermon is not going to be an expository teaching through Proverbs 1, 8 to 19. But it will be an attempt to walk through the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs to see what God teaches us on the calling to be fathers. So let's read the f- verses 8 to 19 of chapter 1, and then we will plunge in. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them up, swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods and shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us, we will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood, They set an ambush for their own lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to this moment with joy and expectation and hope for the one main reason that you are the God who gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, you increase strength. So I pray now that you would come with power You would give me grace and strength to be bold and clear and profitable and edifying to your people and most importantly, faithful to the truth of your word. I pray that everyone here would mix with faith in their heart what they hear, that it might benefit them. We don't want to be like the wilderness generation that heard the good word but didn't benefit from because they didn't mix it with faith. You are the father par excellence and no one can speak about fatherhood better than you can. So please give us illumination, eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, our subject this morning is on the reality of being a father. And I want to begin with this question. For you as a father, what are you seeking to accomplish When you wake up in the morning and go to work and do whatever you do, 
What is in your mind as the end game for your efforts and labors as a father? What are you seeking to do? What do you want to see be the outcome of the way you're spending your life as a father? Or if you are not a father, and of course many of you are not by God's design and will never be, because many of you are sisters, women, regardless of the confusion that the culture around us would want to create, if you are not a father, what do you desire and hope and pray for regarding the outcome of the labors of the fathers at this church or other fathers that you know? What do you want to see be the outcome of what they are seeking to do as fathers? Now Solomon, who wrote the book of Proverbs, was not aimless in regard to the stewardship of being a father. He knew what he was going after. He was getting at something. There was an end game in his mind. He was going somewhere with his effort to be a father. He was doing something precise and definite. Now, how do we know that? Well, in the book of Proverbs, we see that all of what this father, Solomon, is speaking about begins in chapter 1, verse 8, and rises to a climax of sorts in chapter 9, where the father confronts his son with one of two choices. Either lady wisdom on the one hand, woman wisdom on the one hand, or woman folly on the other. So, so the father is very intentionally building up to this crescendo where he confronts his son and says, you've got to choose between one of these two. So Solomon know, knew what he was seeking to do. Just listen to the words of chapter 9, verse 1. Proverbs. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Here's what she says. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. That's the invitation of the woman wisdom. Now here's the counter invitation from the woman folly. Verse 13, chapter nine. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. This is what she says. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Now these invitations carry a certain force and seriousness when you understand them, as I said, in the context of what has gone before. So in Proverbs 1, 8 to 9, 18, we have long discourses of mostly a father speaking to his son. Some of them are spoken by the lady wisdom, by the woman wisdom, but it's mostly by the father speaking to his son. And then the rest of the big chunk of material in the book of Proverbs chapter 10 to 31, you have short P 
these sayings about various aspects of life. In one sense, it's from chapter 10 to 31 that you have Proverbs proper, those short, pithy sayings. And of course, we have a preface from verses 1 to 7 of chapter 1. So when we come to chapter 9, the father is essentially saying to his son, I have told you all you need to know. You now know all you need to know about gangs and violence and the temptation to try to get the good life by violence. Now you know that. I have told you that. Now you know the ruinous effects of illicit sexual pleasure and the allure thereof. I have told you that. Now you know what to do when you are entangled in a legal commitment. You know what you need to know about laziness and about being malicious and plotting evil against your neighbors. You know that. Now, son, you've got to make a choice. There is no sitting on the fence. You've got to choose between lady wisdom and lady folly. That's essentially what the father is saying to the son. And who are these women? Again, like lady wisdom and lady folly. Who are they? Well, woman wisdom represents the wisdom of Yahweh, the wisdom of the covenant God of Israel. So this is a poetic personification. So Solomon is assigning personal attributes to an abstract quality, wisdom, here. That's what's going on. So we know that this is what's going on because of the hint that Solomon gives. This woman builds her house on the highest point of the city. You know, if you ask an ancient Israelite, when you hear of a house built on the highest point of a city, what image comes to your mind? In a heartbeat, they will say, the temple. That's what they will say. Because their lives were built around that reality. So the invitation to dine with woman wisdom is really an invitation into a relationship with Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And Solomon speaks of entering into a relationship with Yahweh in terms of going to a feast with a beautiful young woman. And don't forget, Proverbs is written from the perspective of a father to the son, instructing the son. And the father very creatively casts the invitation for the son to come to a relationship with God in terms of a relation, an intimate relationship with a young woman, because he knows that's an attractive reality to a young man. Woman folly is also a de deity. She also represents a deity, because we know, we know that because her house is also built on a high place. But this is not a deity like Yahweh. This is one of the gods or goddesses that were seeking to detract Israel away from the worship of the one true God. So in the book of Proverbs, the end game, the goal that fathers are going at is that they want to consistently unfold the whole counsel of God's word before their children, so much so that they give their children the best chance, humanly speaking, at choosing to enter into a relationship with woman wisdom over against entering into a relationship with woman folly. They want to give their children the best chance to embrace the one true and living God over against em em embracing the different idols that are vying for the allegiance of their heart. That's what Solomon believes the goal of fatherhood to be. And that's what he's seeking to do. Another way to say it is to say this. 
According to Solomon, a father is aiming to bring their child to choose the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, rather than folly, which is to live and act as one who has entered into intimate relationships with false gods. So, because that's the goal, the end game, what we are getting at as fathers, how then shall we father? If what you are aiming for, if what you are going for, if what you are going to bed and dreaming about and waking up in the morning and talking about and going to work and praying about and doing a Bible study and devotion at home and thinking to see, if that's the goal you are going for, how then shall we father? You want your son or your daughter to choose the narrow way, not the broad way. The way of life, not the way of death. The way of those who are being saved and not the way of those who are perishing. The way of the sons of light and not the sons of darkness. If that's the case, how then shall we father? And I would answer that with three different points. We are to cultivate, we are to instruct, and we are to affirm. You can make that memorable as a as an abbreviation by saying you were to CIA, as long as you understand we are not talking about Central Intelligence Agency, we're talking about cultivate, instruct, and affirm. So here's the first point. We are to cultivate, and I mean this, cultivate an atmosphere of tenderness and compassion in your home. Cultivate an atmosphere of tenderness and compassion in your home, the ambience of your home should be one of tenderness and compassion. You should so father and so order your home and so lead your home in such a way that the predominant experience that is unmissable at your home is that there is tenderness. The air that people breathe in your home is that of tenderness and love and compassion so that when you administer discipline of any kind when necessary, that is happening in the matrix of tenderness and love and compassion. You know, a father is discharging their stewardship as a father rightly and faithfully if, when needed, they administer measured and proportionate discipline as they see fit to their child, their son or daughter, but that is happening in the midst of unrelenting tenderness and compassion and love. Where am I getting that from? If you flip to chapter 4 of Proverbs, verses 3 to 4, Solomon says something amazing. He says this, when I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. Notice here we are dealing with the testimony of a grown man. This is a grown man reminiscing about his boyhood experience, what life was like for him when he was a teenager, maybe, with his father. And Solomon speaks of himself here in the same words that he heard his father speak of him. He says he was tender. David uses the same word in the original to describe Solomon in 1 Chronicles 25, 22, 5 and 29, 1. And there, 
David is saying, Solomon, my son, is tender. Most translations render it as inexperienced, but it's the same word, okay? So, so it's the same word, and, and the latter part of verse 3, here in our text, chapter 4, verses 3, says, Solomon speaking says, he was the only one in the sight of his mother. I mean, we know that David had other sons. Even with Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, David had other sons. We know that from 1 Chronicles 3, 5. So why would Solomon say he was the only son to his father? Well, I think the point is, David so related with Solomon that he felt like he was the only son in the family. David gave him enough attention and enough tenderness and enough love and enough commitment to cultivating an atmosphere where Solomon feels wanted and loved and cared for and protected that it fell for Solomon as though he was the only child to Solomon. And that's the kind of thing I am urging us as fathers to aim for, to apply as we aim for seeing children who get the best chance at choosing lady wisdom over lady folly. All our fatherly responsibilities are more pleasantly discharged and more pleasantly received on the part of our children when they are executed in the context of tenderness and love and care and protection that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. A fathering that happens in surroundings of love and tenderness empowered by the Holy Spirit, is what every child is wired to receive very well. Most children will respond to that very well. As I thought about this, I remembered a verse that we had some weeks back for our Fighter Verse program. And, and I, I think the verse is deeply convicting at many levels. So in Psalm 103, verse 13, this is one of the Psalms of David, the father of Solomon. He says something quite piercing to the heart of any father. says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The logic of the verse, I hope, highlights for you the seriousness of what's going on. It goes like this. There is something immutably true, unchangingly true about the God of the universe. And it is this, that God shows compassion to those who fear him. That doesn't shock us that much. We know that about God. But what has God put in the world to teach people that? He's put fathers showing compassion to their children. So as you read that, you've got to remember, Christian fathers are not army generals barking out orders at their children and beating them into submission. They are people who want to have their children when they grew up Think back to their experience with the father and remember that I was loved extravagantly. Yes, imperfectly, but I was extravagantly loved enough that in the way I was loved by my father, I saw the one true and living God. That's what Solomon is going right for. That's what we are to aim for. And that's why it is such a travesty, a horrendous travesty of Christian fatherhood when there is any hint of abuse of any kind or neglect of a child on the part of a father who bears the name brother. It's such a horrendous distortion of God's design. 
And I think that's why Paul would say to the Colossians, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So part of being a God-glorifying father is a deliberate devotion to cultivating your home into a place where the unmissable and predominant experience is that of tenderness and love and compassion. And here's the second, second in our abbreviation, CIA. I, it is that you be an instructor, that you instruct your children. This means that a father should purposefully communicate content to their children. Fulfilling your role as an instructor is not only a good idea, it is essential to you being a father. You can't effectively father without being an instructor. I mean, think about the number of times that this father very solemnly invites the son to listen to his instruction. From chapter 1 verse 8 to the end of chapter 9, at least 17 different times, the father says. Here's a sampling. Chapter 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. Chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Chapter 3, verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. 420, my son, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. 620, my son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Chapter 8, verse 32, and now, O sons, listen to me, blessed are those who keep my words. Just step back from that and ask. How many times a day and a week and a month do my children hear me instruct them? It couldn't be more emphatic and emphasized in the book of Proverbs that being the primary instructor in godliness in your home as a father is a non-negotiable responsibility. It's that clear. Why would the wise man, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, say this over and over and over again? You cannot explain that responsibility away. You know, one of the ways that our culture seeks to disparage and badmouth the church is to accuse us of indoctrinating our children. They want to make us feel shame for inculcating a certain worldview into our children. They want us to feel like we are some Stone Age people who accidentally happen to be living in the 21st century. It's true that when the culture accuses us of things, we have to listen and hear if there is something to that accusation. If, if, if we get accused of sexual abuse or the cover-up thereof, God forbid, we have to listen. We can't just say, we are answerable only to God. We have to listen to the charges and see if there is something to it. But if by the charge of indoctrination, the world around us is seeking to shame us into turning away from instructing our children in godliness, the only answer we have to give is to say, we do indoctrinate and we are unashamed about it. That's the only answer we owe the world. We must never forget the book of Proverbs was given in a covenant context. 
That's the point of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 to 9. We read these words. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. God has chosen a covenant people for himself. And what is the key structure that he has designed as the means by which the oracles, the words he gave will be passed from one generation to the next? It's the family. And God wanted it to be clear for every child growing up in Israel what the most important book in the world, in the world is. He didn't want any child growing up confused as to what is the most important book. I mean, think about it. If, if your child comes to know that each time I'm walking with daddy along the road or sitting back at home or a, a walk through the park or driving back from school or going to grocery, there's one main theme that runs through what daddy says. What do you think they are going to come to think about what book that theme is coming from? And then on top of that, they see verses from that book around their house and at the gate of their house. That child is going to conclude that book must be a big deal. Those are not mere words. They are my family's very life. So when you hear today, the pundits of the culture broadcast and celebrate that a family is raising their child genderless and regarding instructions in basic realities like maleness and femaleness as oppressive, you shouldn't think, maybe calling my son John and buying them blue-colored outfit and male toys, or buying, calling my daughter Mary and buying them female toys and pink-colored outfit is being oppressive. It is not. It's being faithful to what God has called us to do as Christian fathers. And it is that kind of fathering that leads the children to look back and say, I saw God in the way my daddy treated me. The call to fatherhood is a call to be an instructor. It's quite remarkable to me that when Paul would admonish Timothy to stay true to the gospel of the cross, one of the reasons he gives to Timothy is that Timothy should remember the things, the instructions he received from childhood. For, from childhood, he says to Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. It's quite amazing. In the case of Timothy, it was not the dad instructing Timothy primarily. It was mainly his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. It looks like the father was instructionally absent from the picture. We know from Acts 16 that Timothy's father was a Greek who seemed to have been an unbeliever. But the mother and the grandmother stepped up and God blessed their efforts. Dad, you don't want it said of your child that God saved them in spite of your failure to instruct. You want it said God saved them as a grace to you through the instruction and the means of godly example that you were to your daughter or your son. And you could argue, but we are reformed. I mean, God does whatever he pleases. 
Of course we are reformed. Of course we know that instruction does not guarantee salvation. But we are also reformed enough to know that God has ordained to save through instruction. And therefore to compromise instruction is to compromise the salvation of your child, of your daughter or your son. So we cannot explain away that responsibility. There's never been a situation where somebody neglected their responsibility to instruct and there weren't disastrous consequences. That was the case of Eli, the priest in Israel, whose sons were desecrating the priesthood. That was the case of David, who succeeded remarkably in the case of Solomon, but failed abysmally in the case of Adonijah, one of his sons. We read in 1 Kings chapter, five verses, chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father, listen to this, his father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? And he was also a very handsome man. That's a very explosive combination. A child who always had their way, and they also knew they were very cute. That's, 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 a, that's a very explosive combination. And the reason is, is that Part of the tragedy of the fall is that cuteness and total depravity are not mutually exclusive, okay? Every baby you will ever see is unbelievably cute, but it's also totally depraved. And David missed that in the case of Adonijah. And the fruit were evident. He exalted himself to usurp the throne from Solomon, who was the God-appointed heir to the throne of David. So failure to instruct in godliness, yes, it doesn't guarantee there will be a believer, but when, when you instruct, it doesn't guarantee, but when you fail to instruct, you short-secure the salvation that God has purposed to work. So there are tragic consequences in failing to instruct your child. I said at the beginning, this father here is very clear-headed. He knows where he's coming from, and he knows where he is going to. I mean, notice the kind of themes that he hits with his son, okay? He tells the son about what is truly valuable. It's not to be the richest person in the world. It is to know the fear of the Lord. It's not gold and silver. It's to know the fear of the Lord. If he lived today, not that there is anything uh, he would have against Major League Baseball, he would say it's more important to know and love God than to play in Major League Baseball or anything like that. That gives you fame in the world. And he tells his son, you should be careful about the allure of trying to get the good life by violence, of cheating. If you see that iPhone or that sports car or that pair of clothes or that pair of shoes and it's so attractive to you, you can't help but rob somebody of their money, steal money from somebody's account, see an old person who's losing their mind and then you just take their checkbook and write figures in there they didn't want to write to get their money to yourself. You will bring ruin on yourself, the father is telling the son. And then he speaks to him of the allure and the ruinous consequences of illicit sexual pleasure, as our brother Johnny so helpfully taught us last week. And then he speaks to him about what to do when, when you get entangled in legal commitments, laziness, and plotting evil. So what's this father showing us? He's saying this. There are certain topics your children should not hear for the first time from someone else. You should be the one to begin the conversation. 
You should be ahead of the curve. You should not be reacting to the news media and to the internet and to, the so and to social media and to peer pressure at school or wherever. You should be the one setting the tone for the conversation. You should turn to the book of Proverbs and set the agenda for what kind of topics get talked about. Because if your children hear it first from their peer who has absorbed it from the culture around them and you are in reaction mood trying to root things out, you are one leg down in the conversation. The father is proactively taking the first step so that there are categories to think these things through when they get bombarded by these things from the world. We can't be in reaction mood because the God we have been called into relationship with knows how the fallen human heart works and he's given us the tools we need to be the instructors we have to and cannot but be towards our children. For many of you who have raised grown-up children, you know that you just see patterns of sin repeat. Like I look at sometimes my children and want to get frustrated over something they are doing and I'll say, I know where they got that from because I remember what I did to my own parents. But if I let them learn to think about those things from watching TV or YouTube or whatever, then they will have thoughts calcified in their minds before I'm trying to chisel them out. That's not a good place to be as a dad. So fathers, no matter how demanding your job and work schedule is, you cannot and should not let it be the regular rhythm of your life that you come back home so emotionally and physically exhausted, the only thing you can do is kick back the lazy boy and scroll through channels on the TV. That's not the way to father. You must intentionally save up energy to come back home and actually be home and actually engage, and actually instruct. And I know, of course, I know, everybody's work schedule and, and workload and everything is different. But, but no matter how demanding and taxing your work schedule is, you can't make a consistent and a patterned failure to instruct the way your family operates. Nothing can be good enough as an explanation for that. You've got to figure out what times of day, how much should I do in order, what should I do, what should I creatively do to make sure that these kinds of themes my children hear from me, somebody they know and trust, he loves them. One main command that the New Testament gives to fathers is to say, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I bet Paul was reading the book of Proverbs to say that. So a father should cultivate surroundings of tenderness and love and compassion in the home. A father should instruct, should take the responsibility to be the main instructor in godliness in their home. And finally, a father should affirm, and listen carefully, I'm not saying affirm the children. That's good and has its place. But what I have in mind is affirm and celebrate mom's role in the instruction as well. You should affirm and celebrate mom 
as a co-equal instructor with you of your children. That's part of your responsibility as a father. I mean, look at chapter 1, verse 8. Solomon says, hear my son, your father's instruction. And then the second part of the verse, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Chapter 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment. And the second part, and forsake not your mother's teaching. So notice that this father treats the instructions of the mother of his children as co-equal and complementary to what he is telling the children to do. He is not saying, take what I say, and you can take or leave what mom says. That's not what he's thinking. Solomon understood that when God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that was not just a command with biological significance. It was a command with significance for her children are read, her children are instructed in the home, which means it's the mom and the dad doing it together. And it's part of the dad's responsibility to help the kids learn that mom is as important and deserving of respect and obedience as he, the dad, is. That's why Solomon says, forsake not your mother's teaching. Forsake not your mother's instruction. And it's the, the dad to lead the charge to make sure that the kids don't miss that that they understand that and embrace it and live in submission to it. Now, this has an implication for the way mothers spend their time and interact with their kids. You know, moms, especially younger moms, are excellent at researching various important and helpful things. Which one is the best sleep schedule? Which one is the best feeding schedule? Which ones are the best snacks? the best essential oils, the best homeschooling curriculums. Young moms are excellent at that. And that's wonderful because that's something of the fruit, that's something of the instinct to be a nurturing person of the children. You have a natural burden to see them thrive and flourish. That's wonderful. And it's even more so when that kind of tendency is empowered by the redeeming grace of God through the work of the Holy Spirit in a sister's life. That's wonderful. But you never have to let that be supplanted by your owning the responsibility to be a co-equal instructor with your husband. You have to learn and take things in from God's word so that you are with your husband a co-equal instructor of your children. They should hear God's word from you as well. They should not just watch and know that when it comes to God's word, it's daddy who speaks. Mom just kind of lets us do this or that thing. No, take the responsibility to come alongside and be the helper suitable that God has called you to be. You know, Paul, when he speaks to the children in Ephesians chapter 6, he puts the accent on the fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children, but bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But in verse 1, when he speaks to the children, the instructing role of the mothers is presupposed because he does not say children obey your fathers in the Lord. He says children obey your parents in the Lord, presupposing the mom will also be an instructor with the father. So it's not the dad's job all by himself. But this has implication for children as well. So you children, listen to me here. 
You cannot play games with mom and dad. You can't start saying, well, daddy is a stricter disciplinarian. So I'll take seriously everything he says, but I, I know I can always get, a, get away with things that I do against mom's instructions. You are hurting yourself because mom is as much an important authority over your life and blessing in your life as dad is. When you take that approach to life, the Bible threatens terrifying consequences for you. Listen to Proverbs 30, 17. The Bible says, the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Is that terrifying or what? I mean, if you don't get anything of the imagery used there, at least you get terrifying judgment is coming on a child who scorns not only dad, but mom and dad, or one of the other, any one of them. I said at the beginning that this father in Proverbs aims to give his children the best opportunity, the best chance to choose a relationship with the covenant God of Israel and the reality that is personified as woman wisdom in the book of Proverbs is introduced to us for the first time in chapter 1 of Proverbs, verses 20 to 22. And it's quite re remarkable that this character, this woman wisdom, speaks to at least three different classes of people in the book of Proverbs. Okay? First, she speaks to people called the simple ones, a different Hebrew word, people who are naive and inexperienced, easily seduced, but they are capable of learning and can hear something. And then it speaks to fools, it's a different word, someone who hates knowledge, who does not delight in understanding, loves to be mischievous. Then again in verse 22, it speaks to others that he calls scoffers. It's another Hebrew word, a different one. This one is a proud and hardy person. Does not delight, delight in scorning. This is the one who actually turns around and makes a mockery of the fear of the Lord. Rejects it and mocks it. Now why did I bring out these categories? It's because some of us have children who are so young at this point because they are so cute and we love them so much it's impossible for us to imagine any one of them in these categories. That's a parental instinct. It's also true that for some of us, we have had the amazing experience of seeing a child raised and they are generally compliant to parental instructions and then they get saved early in life and then they are growing in the knowledge of the Lord and it's so glorious to have a conversation with them because they sound very much like a fellow redeemed adult. That's glorious. It's also true there are some of us who have raised children and, are, and have seen them profess faith and then we have seen them wander away from the Lord and become like scoffers and kick against the gospel and then in prayer and just seeking to show them the gospel, the Lord's brought them back. That's glorious. It's also true that right now there are some of us who are praying and pleading with the Lord to bring back a child that we know and love and who has become a scoffer at the gospel. All these different categories exist in our midst. But I brought that up to remind you of an undefeatable truth in God's word. And it is this, 
The lady wisdom that we read of in Proverbs is a foreshadow of the full revelation of the wisdom of the one true and living God that is given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And it is God who by his power has made you to be in Christ, whom Paul says has become for us wisdom from God, our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So let everyone who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because the prerogative and power lie with God to make anyone to be in Christ, you should not be weary at continuing to plead with the Lord and call on him to save that young child that you don't yet know who they are growing up to be or to plead with him to bring back that one who has wandered away and is proudly rejecting the gospel. There is always hope because the gospel of God is the gospel of God. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And if you have had the experience of seeing the Lord save your child and sustain them and is blessing their walk, you could step back and tearfully praise God. This is not ultimately because I'm the most awesome dad in the world. It's because God by his power made them to be in Christ. And I praise him for that. So fathers... Let's give ourselves to CIA, cultivate, instruct, and affirm, in, cultivate an atmosphere of tenderness and love and compassion at home, instruct in godliness, and affirm mom's role as a co-equal instructor in hope that God will work through our weak efforts to raise the next generation of worshipers of Jesus Christ. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy to us in Christ. I pray for myself and for your sons here in this room to whom you have given the stewardship of fatherhood. I pray that we would receive it with thankfulness and with a relentless devotion to want to see a home be surroundings of love, places where your word is heard as a regular part of life and a place where moms feel the, a sense of fulfillment in being part of what you have called fathers to do. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.